to go kind of quickly through this part. Last week we saw from various passages such as Luke 1, 30-33 and Hebrews 8 um, and various other New Testament passages that Christ is uh, really the centerpiece of the Old Testament covenants. We learned that a covenant involves an oath and a sacrifice, a meal and a guarantee. And then we considered the first two covenants. First, the Edenic covenant, the one made in Eden with Adam and Eve after they, uh, well, as um, God placed them there. And Adam, he, he said, if you will obey me and you'll not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will have life. But if you disobey me, you will have death. It is a, it is a covenant of life and death. Yet even when, when Adam violated that covenant and the penalty of death was justly prescribed and death passed then upon all of Adam's progeny, God began to give us insight into the rest of his covenant. You'll remember in the, the Proto-Evangelium where, where God says to Adam and Eve, uh, he will bruise, speaking of Satan, he will bruise your heel, your, the heel of your seed, but your seed will crush his head. Satan's attack on your seed will be a futile attack. It will not, it will not stop him, but, but the attack, that, the, the, uh, the impact of your seed upon Satan will be one that is, uh, that is um, complete. It will be um, one that is final as Adam, uh, the seed of Adam and Eve crush the, the head of Satan. And so we see that the topic of the seed starting to come up. It comes up all the way from Genesis, from that very first promise. And we see it start to weave itself through all the covenants. Next, we, we looked very quickly at the, uh, uh, the Noahic covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Noah. In Genesis 6.18, there is the first time the word covenant is used, and God forms a covenant with Noah. And key to that covenant, again, you'll remember that God looks on earth and he sees the results of the sin of Adam and Eve as they spread across the world. And he sees that every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And God responds to sin by just judgment. All men are going to be wiped out. But what would happen if all men were wiped out? Well, then the promise that he'd made to Adam and to Eve would not be fulfilled because God had promised that the, the seed would, would be their seed. It would be a, a man is the one that would be responsible for redemption. But if God wipes out all of mankind, then that covenant, that promise could not be fulfilled. And so the Bible tells us that, that Noah had uh, grace. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord, Genesis 6.8. And why did Noah find grace in the sight of the Lord? Why does anyone find grace in the sight of the Lord? Just because that's the way our God is. It's not because they deserve it. Grace inherently isn't undeserved. Noah found God's undeserved favor. It wasn't because Noah was better than everybody else. It was because of God. 
not because of man, that, that Noah found grace in God's sight. And then it goes on in Genesis 6, 9 and says, Noah walked with God and God spared him and his seed. Isn't that something? Specifically, that same language, the idea of a seed. God spared Noah and his seed. Now, he's not just referring to Noah's sons, though his sons were spared. He's referring to all of that promise that started with Adam and now we see is going to be fulfilled through Noah. And as we saw even further, it's going to be fulfilled through Shem, one of Noah's sons that is blessed. And so we see now God's promise is not just to mankind, but it's to a Semite, to a man, a, a, a man from the line of Shem. In both of these covenants, God shows himself faithful when man is infinitely unfaithful. In both of these covenants, God affirms his blessing through the seed. And, the, and we can be assured of the continuation of that seed. Even though it looks inherently impossible for God to fulfill that covenant. After all, Adam sinned and it separated God and man. And yet God has a way to fulfill his promise through Adam. And then all of mankind is sinful and God is going to destroy them all. And yet God preserves his seed through Shem and through Noah. Tonight we're going to move on. And if you'd like to turn back into your Bible to Genesis chapter 8, we're going to begin there. And we're going to consider the next time that this idea of a covenant comes up. And we see that in Genesis chapter 8. After the, um, after the, uh, uh, the Noah and the ark and all of that has, has transpired and God has uh, killed all living things on the earth, again man comes to the brink of destruction through their sin. If you look at Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21... The Bible says this. It says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his, in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Here God recognizes that man continues to have that same sinful nature that began with Adam and has been passed down through all of their race, and yet God intends to spare them. In Genesis 11, you know the story. Shortly after God uh, Noah comes out of the ark, he tells them to go into the earth or to, to, to go throughout the world uh, and to be fruitful and to multiply. And what, do they, what is one of the first things that they do? In Genesis 11, you can see that's the story of the, uh, the Tower of Babel. They go and immediately, it's like repeating Eden all over again. God said, go throughout all the world, be fruitful and multiply. And what's the first thing they do? They disobey God and they form a city. And then they try to build a, a tower so that if there's another flood, they can escape. It's like they're... they're, they're doing whatever they can to rebel against God, just like Adam did. 
God tells man to go through the whole earth and to be fruitful, and instead they congregate in cities and they build that tower. And rather than banish them as he did with Eden or destroy them as he did with Noah, God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He'd promised Noah that he never again would would destroy the earth through a flood. And yet these people rejected that covenant by building that tower. And God in his grace confuses their language and thereby facilitates their disobedience. And interestingly... This story of the Tower of Babel goes all the way through Genesis 10 through Genesis 11. And then this is what happens in verse 9 of Genesis 11. Look what it says. Therefore, in the name that is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the languages of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad from the face of the earth. Verse 10. Look how it starts right after that. Um, right after that record of the, the Tower of Babel, and it says, these are the generations of Shem. God is immediately after their rebellion, starting with a genealogy. And which genealogy? The genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and, and begot um, Arpaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begot Arpaxad 500 years and he begot sons and daughters. Verse 22. He goes all the way down. And I'm not going to make myself look silly by trying to slaughter all those names. And so verse 22. And Sherag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And Sherag lived after begetting Nahor 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine, uh, 9 and 20 years and begot Terah. And Nahor lived after he begot Terah 119 years and he begot sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years, and he begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Isn't it something, right after that, they violate God's promise, or they they reject God's covenant to Noah, and they go all the way down through this genealogy because God had said, my seed will be preserved through Shem, and they trace it all the way down to Abram. Here you see God indicates the genealogy not just for a boring list of names, but as a witness to God's absolute faithfulness in keeping his covenant oath. It wasn't just one or two generations that God delayed, but God worked down through, and I believe there are ten generations of men from, from Shem all the way down to Abram. If you'll turn forward now to Genesis 12 and look at verses 1 through 3. God is going to maintain his covenant, but now through a man by the name of Abram. Verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth Uh, be blessed. Now, as we'll see, God's covenant with Abraham is going to involve three things. A land, that seed, and a blessing. uh, God repeats the the promise multiple times. Genesis 12, 7. Genesis 13, 14 through 16. Genesis 15, verses 3 through 6. Verse 6 says this, 
of, uh, of Abram, that he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. So let me ask you, why did God choose Abram? Why did God choose Noah? Was it because uh, Abram was a righteous man? He's living there in Ur, and he, you know, there's all the world is uh, 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 kind of unfolding sinfully around him, and yet he's a man that lives above all else. Joshua 24.2 says this, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abram, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram's family was just as it was just as idolatrous as the next. They served other gods. It wasn't because he was more righteous. It wasn't because he was worshiping the one true God. God spared uh, uh, Abram for the same reason that he spared Noah, simply because of his grace. How did Abram respond? Look at Genesis twelve three. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. What, what does Abram's uh, behavior reveal? It reveals that he believed what God had to say. Abram believed God by faith. It was a place, if you look back in, in Hebrews, the Bible tells us he went out having never seen this place, being assured of nothing, and yet he went out by faith. God promised in the Edenic covenant that redemption would come through a man. In the Noahic covenant through a Semite. And now God's promise is to be brought through the line of Abram. He's not just a man, not just a Semite, but we're going to see that he's going to be a Jew. Let's consider God's covenant with Abram for a moment. You remember the story. Uh, um, and it appears that there's no way that this promise is going to be fulfilled. Do you remember Abraham, uh, Abram, and he, he grows older, and he, he, he's looking around, I'm, boy, still no children. Hey, Sarah, you know, no children. Sarah was barren. They're growing older and older and still no, ch- no children. Genesis 17, 19. All the way from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. This idea of the seed arises again. And the idea of a covenant God promises that it's going to be Abraham and Sarah and they two together will have a child and shall call his name Isaac. God reveals that that redemption will not only come by a man, by a Semite from Abraham, but from Isaac and then from Jacob after him. You see that in Genesis 28, 15, Genesis 35, 12. For time's sake, um, I'm I'm only going to remind you of the multiple times. I'm not going to. Re- I'm only going to remind you of the multiple times that Abraham uh, really jeopardized that covenant. Remember, several times he goes into a foreign kingdom and he says, "Yeah, Sarah. Well, she's my sister." 
And by so doing, if, if Sarah had become pregnant by an, another man, then that covenant that God had made between Abraham and her, uh, and the three of them, would have been jeopardized, and yet God supernaturally preserves her. You'll remember the pivotal story in Abraham's walk with God. God finally, after Abraham's 100 years old and, and Sarah is, is past the time of childbearing, yet God miraculously allows them to have a child in their old age. The child that was promised to them and is named Isaac. And yet God calls to Abraham and he says, Take your son and go to the Mount Moriah. Take thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and go into the land uh, into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. Again, how does Abraham respond? By faith, he takes this child, this child that is a promise, uh, the very essence of the covenant. It must be through him. And he takes him and brings him to the place that God has commanded, and he is fully prepared. As they approach the mountain, in Genesis 22.5, turn over there. Genesis 22.5, they had gone on this journey, Abraham and his son and his servants. And in Genesis 22.5, Abraham said unto his young men, the servants, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad, lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham, though he was commanded by God to sacrifice his son, and though his behavior shows that he was fully prepared to do that, in fact, he has the, the knife up and ready to plunge it into his son so that he can offer him as a sacrifice. Yet, even before they went up that mountain, Abraham knew that they were going to return, and not just him, but his son as well. And, and the only way that that makes sense is that Abraham was trusting in that covenant. Trusting in the full promise of God that if my son should die, God will even then make him alive again. My only son, my only begotten son. Indicating, as I said, that expectation, he takes uh, his son Isaac in Genesis 22, verse 10. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay him. And the angel of the Lord called out unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. Again, the son is in jeopardy. And there seems to be no way that the covenant can be fulfilled. And yet God continually fulfills that, that covenant in such a way that glorifies himself. God provides a ram for the sacrifice. God spares Isaac, that only seed. And God sees what Abraham has done in 22.18. Look what he says. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. It is amazing when you see the sovereign hand of God, and you see 
the faith of man and, and how, they, how God is orchestrating those things to glorify himself and bring about this plan of redemption. Think about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God had provided, promised, if you'll remember, I said three things. A seed, a land, and promise. Now, as I thought about God's promise of the fulfilled seed, I, I was, uh, had cause to read in the Gospels, and I thought it was rather ironic. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Isn't that amazing that, that he says that? Because if you think of Abraham, when Abraham had Isaac, he was basically a stone. He was as good as dead. He was an old guy past the place where he could possibly have children. And, and here, uh, I think Christ, yes, he's saying, you know, he could raise up children from these stones. But when, when you think of what God actually did to preserve his covenants and to fulfill those, you know, that's really no stretch. God very much, if, if it was necessary to raise up children by a stone, God could do that. And yet, God promised Abraham a seed. And in a partial sense, that seed was fulfilled and provided to him in the person of Isaac, born in his old age, born to uh, his wife, Sarah. And yet, no, you can't read Romans 9, 10, and 11 without understanding that God's covenant with Abraham is not yet completely fulfilled. The church does not replace Israel, and Israel is not the church. God has a unique plan for Abraham and his offspring. But as we've already considered in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible tells us and affirms specifically that the seed to which God has referred ultimately refers to Christ. Listen to this in Romans chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. One day God will have and completely fulfill all of that promise. Yes, it will be fulfilled specifically through Israel. There will be Jews children of Abraham that, uh, that, that, um, that occupy the millennial kingdom. And God will uh, uh, fulfill his seed, or fulfill his promise to the Jew. But the ultimate fulfillment is through Christ and through the seed of Christ. He promised God, uh, God promised a land. And the land, the promise of the land was partially fulfilled through Joshua. It was partially fulfilled through David. However, not until Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period and establishes his kingdom on earth will that promise be fully satisfied. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of, of this aspect as well. For the land was never fully occupied by Joshua. The land was never fully occupied by David. 
It will be fully occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ when he rules and reigns with perfect justice and then universal blessing. That God would bless Abraham and make him a blessing to the entire world brings the focus of that promise directly to Christ. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 2.2 tells us that Jesus was a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's clear that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Galatians 3.13 and 14 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 is making it clear that the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to Abraham that, that of, of an, a universal blessing um, upon the Gentiles what comes through Christ. Is Christ in the Old Testament? We see that Abrahamic covenant being made of a land, of a seed, and of blessing. And the only way that that is fulfilled ultimately and perfectly is through Jesus Christ. Is Christ in the Abrahamic covenant? Yes both in its establishment and in its fulfillment, we can conclude nothing else. Let me go on, finally, to the Davidic covenant. If you'll turn forward in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. From Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, The next time the idea of the covenant comes to life is in the life of David. How do you get, and I've tried to trace all the way from Adam, we've traced it down through through Noah and Shem, and we traced it down through that genealogy, uh, down down to Abraham. Well, how do you get from Abraham to David? It's important that those are connected. You see that Abraham had a son, Isaac. We understand that he was the fulfillment of that promise, a partial fulfillment. And Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had a whole herd of kids. And in Jacob's last will and testament, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, he's speaking to his 12 sons. And to Judah he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And until him shall the uh, the gathering of the people be. Judah is the the tribe from which kings would come. And it is from him that the promised Messiah. And you see, again, the... the, um, the, the choosing of the, the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, it's like it begins so broad and it's coming in more and more precise. And the world's growing and all the, the genealogies and branches of, of the world are growing and yet God is focusing in like a laser 
on the cross and on Jesus Christ. And we see it get increasingly more specific and from, uh, from, from uh, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then down through the genealogy, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, down to David. During the time um, after uh, 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 Judah, as the people lived in the land, um, and we, we go through the period of judges, and we see that the people, again, increasingly turn their back on the Lord. Much as in the same way as they did around Babel, and much as the same way that Adam did, sin continues to, to stick its head up. And yet God is, remains faithful to this rebellious people, his, the race that he's created, and to the promises and the covenants that he's made. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, it gives us the historical account of God's chose, ch- choice of, of David. Look what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'll start reading at verse 8. It says, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto thy servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off of all thine enemies out of thy sight, and made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, and the, the Lord telleth thee that thou wilt make thee a house... And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice that it's referring to a specific person. It says, I will set up thy seed after thee, and I will establish his kingdom. Now notice how that kingdom is described. He shall build a house for my name, and I will, esta- I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The passage comes immediately after God rejects David's proposal to build a house, uh, um, a temple for worshiping. Um, and instead, David says, God, I want to make a house for you. And instead, God says, no, David. I'm going to make a house for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. We see the telltale sign of a covenant. You see that word seed is again mentioned. The seed is the one identified who would build a house for God's name. Who is the one that builds a house for God's name? Solomon? Oh, is it Solomon? You might say so, but... It's true that Solomon does partially fulfill this covenant. He did build a temple. The temple was completed somewhere around 959 B.C. That temple was totally destroyed by the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Read 2 Kings 25.8. Is that a few hundred years? I think 400 and some odd 
Is that 400 and some odd years equate to forever? Hardly not. Clearly, the covenant was not completely fulfilled with Solomon. 2 Samuel 7.13 tells us his kingdom will be forever. Again, let's consider that promise. If you follow the the Davidic line, and and we'll look at the genealogy, you can look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And you see how God traces all the way down through, and you'll see tracing it through David. And it comes down to a, a man by the name of Jeconiah, or Coniah, or, or um, Jeconias, or I'm sorry, Jehoiakim, Coniah, or Jeconias. Those are all the same guy. And the reason that's significant is because he was the final king before uh, uh, all the Jews were let off into Babylonian captivity. He's also significant because he is the person that's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 36. Turn in your Bibles there, please. Genesis chapter 36. God says, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless your seed. And, and your, your kingdom, there'll be no end. And yet, look what he says. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 30. He says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast out into the day of the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearken not. Here God pronounces a curse on the, on the, the, the seed of David, on the kingly line. The promise that God had made to David and to Solomon of the covenant seed would be established forever, and yet now God curses Jehoiakim. And it's almost like an anti-covenant. He's like, I'm not going to bless you. No blessing, no seed, no land. You're going to be cast out of the land, uh, and I'm going to curse you. And again, we get that tension where it's almost seemingly impossible for a covenant of David, for the covenant of David to be fulfilled. Turn now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I promised you we'd look at this genealogy, and we will quickly. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. You can follow it all the way down if you'd like. Um, I'm getting late here, so I'm going to scurry along. Drop down, look at verse 6. It says, And Jesse begot David the king, and David begot Solomon, of her that had been the wife of Urias, Look at verse 11. And Joseph begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time that they were carried to Babylon. That's the guy that we've been talking about, the God curses in Jeremiah. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Selethiel, uh, and Selethiel begat uh, Zerubbabel. Drop down, look at verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Well, you, if you look at this, it's quite clear that 
that this traces the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ from all the way down from David through that character that was cursed by God, Jeconias, uh, all the way down to uh, the, the, the husband of Mary, who is Joseph, the legal father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said legal father because we understand that God had a way of fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Even though it seems impossible, we call it the virgin birth. God resolves that tension. He he had to be born of the seed of David, and yet at the same time, he couldn't be born of the seed of David. How can you have your cake and eat it too? Here God comes up with a way, and it is only by the virgin birth. Because if you look at an alternate genealogy that you'll find in Luke chapter 3, And if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 31, you'll notice that the child of David that that Christ is mapped through is not Solomon, but is another son by the name of Nathan. Nathan is not Solomon. And here, instead of of the, the line of Solomon, which eventually is going to be cursed and plugged, if you will, God traces Jesus' genealogy through Nathan, down not through his father, but to Mary, his mother. And it is generally believed that the genealogy that we have here in Luke chapter 3 reflects Mary's bloodline, not Joseph. Yes, Mary was of the seed of David, but not through Solomon, not through the cursed place. Jesus Christ has legal claim to the throne of David through, uh, through his father, or through, his, through Mary's husband, Joseph. And he has biological claim to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant through, through his mother, Mary, and by Nathan. And so you see that tension and that fulfillment of the Davidic covenant through the virgin birth, through something that seems impossible. And yet, God drives this way in in such a way that he can glorify himself and again, show his great faithfulness. Turn to one final passage, if you would, to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 gives us a great commentary on all of this Davidic covenant. And I wish I could do a a complete... um, consideration of this. There's just so much. And yet, I'm going to pick just a couple verses. Psalm 89, verse 27. The Bible says, And I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his kingdom forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, that's the hesed, the steadfast love, will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail, my covenant Will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips? Isaiah understood the Davidic covenant. 
after the first great uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah 53, he speaks of the everlasting covenant, even the sure mercies of David. And as he goes on and he's going to describe that sure mercies of David, he describes them as a person. He says about those sure mercies, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Isaiah 55, verses 3 and 4. God's covenant was with man. We see that in the Edenic covenant. Through a Semite in the Noetic covenant. A Jew, as we consider him, through Abraham and Isaac. And from the tribe of Judah, as he promised Jacob would rule on the throne of David forever and ever as we see through the Davidic covenant. All of these other men, any man that's ever lived has has come to their utter end. It was impossible for them to rule and reign on a throne forever because they were all men like us and they would die. There's only one man that could fulfill the Davidic covenant. The man that will be not only that will be prophet, priest, and king, in a perfect and an ultimate way. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fulfilled partially even now, but ultimately when he returns for his millennial kingdom, when he rules and reigns. Right now, God is. Put-